Coming to you from Washington, D.C., I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces and you are listening in. And this month, we welcome three guests. All three have had intersection with the issues of abortion and reproductive justice. Susan Chorley is an ordained American Baptist minister and is executive director of Exhale, an after-abortion counseling talk line. Reverend Sakina Hamlin is economic justice advocate and ordained with Christian Church Disciples of Christ and the economic justice minister for the United Church of Christ. Reverend Hamlin pastors congregations in Pennsylvania and North Carolina. And finally, Andrea Lucado is a journalist, author, and editor who was raised in the heart of the white evangelical church. I've asked these three amazing women to come talk with us on Freedom Road about abortion and reproductive justice because we stand at the beginning of the most consequential election year, perhaps since 1860, that election year that preceded the Civil War. And though we have a president that has caged children, ripped them from their mother's arms with no plan to return them, who has betrayed American security by inviting foreign nations to come in and jerry-rig our elections, who bragged about grabbing women's private parts, that president enjoys the enthusiastic support of approximately 77% of white evangelicals. And according to a Washington Post report last July, the number one reason for that support is the issue of abortion. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us. And keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks and letting us know what you think. We actually really do love the back and forth. So keep it coming. Okay, let's talk. Abortion and reproductive justice are emotional issues. They are personal. We don't talk about them in public. In fact, we rarely talk about them at all. In fact, I recently surveyed a room full of evangelical and evangelical proximate women, and I asked them, have you ever had a conversation about abortion in public before? Every last one of them said no. In fact, none of them had ever talked about it in public before. Never. With anyone. Really, you might say? Yes, never. With anyone. And that is why we're talking about it today. Because I've come to believe the reason the issue of abortion has the level of power that it does in our nation Enough power to hold a nation hostage to a demonstrated white nationalist is because we never talk about it. So we're going to talk about it. And as we do, we're going to do two things to create protected space for these brave women who have agreed to wade into these waters with me. One, Because most of us are very familiar with the arguments against abortion and reproductive justice, we are centering the stories of women who have come to other conclusions. Two, we are speaking from our hearts, from our own stories, not as experts on high. Our hope is that exposure to more women's stories will help us to humanize this issue to take it from the realm of political weapon into the realm of an all-too-human public health challenge. Susan, Sakina, Andrea, let's go. You ready? 
I think so. Yes. yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's talk. So I want to ask you, my first question is actually to all of you. How has your life intersected with the issue of abortion or reproductive justice? I have something to say, Lisa. This is uh, Susan Chorley, Mm -hmm. and I have actually hosted multiple public conversations about my own abortion experience and also opening conversations around abortion in Christian congregations across the country. Mm. And I do agree with you. It is a very fraught (laughs) and terrifying topic Mm -hmm. um, and experience to be one sharing my own personal abortion story. And what I have learned in the process of doing that has been people are very desperate for this conversation Mm. and really would prefer to have a space to be able to process, discuss, wrestle with our feelings and thoughts about abortion Mm. and how we as Christians make decisions moving forward about our own bodies, about our communities, and about grace and love. Wow. Thank you so much. And so, Susan, your story intersects, and you said that you had an abortion yourself. Can you share a little bit more of your story? Sure. Mm -hmm. It was about 13 years ago that I had an abortion, and I had a two-year-old son. He, He is now 17, and I was pastoring a church here in Massachusetts. And I was recognizing that my marriage was increasingly unhealthy and unsafe. And I was the primary breadwinner for us as well. And I was incredibly concerned about how to move my life forward professionally, personally, and faithfully. And so I did, um, my now ex-husband and I made the decision to terminate that pregnancy. And it's taken me, you know, 13 or so years to feel comfortable speaking out about it in public. Not Mm. so much because I had experienced, um, I guess because I didn't really know a path forward. I grew up in the Mm -hmm. church. My dad is also an American Baptist minister. Mm -hmm. And I felt as though I could bring all of who I am to the church. And then when I had this experience, I had great pause about whether or not Christian community could handle it and handle me in the ways that I needed to be cared for and to have compassion for Uh, through that experience. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing. And it's you, that's incredibly vulnerable and we respect the, really the courage that you just demonstrated in sharing your story. Thank you. Well, it has definitely taken time (laughs) and Mm -hmm. lots of, um, you know, meetings with therapists and (laughs) directors. (laughs) I hear Um, that. And to be honest with you, finding Christian community that can hold this story with me. Mm, Oh, that's so powerful. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So I can't wait to dive in deeper in that portion. And we will a little bit later. I want to turn now to Sakina. Sakina, what's your intersection with these issues? My intersection uh, in a lot of ways is really carried in my body. Uh, Mm. I'm a Black female. I look at these issues through that lens. And for particularly a Black female, uh, since I was young, it did not feel right, the discussion around abortion Mm. and the binary way in which it tends to be spoken about, given the history of this country as it relates to commodifying the body of Black people, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as how the Black female body has been invaded and mapped for economic and pleasure of white men. Well, Um, now... That is, um, <laughs> that's for real. That is right. <laughs> that tends to be further complicated by the fact that I am a North Carolinian. I was born and raised mm-hmm. in North Carolina, and we were one of the states that participated in the eugenics movement, in which 
people of color, mostly African-American, but also First Nation people and primarily poor women. And I will say also their daughters, that's what the history tells us, were sterilized. And so I intersect with it in that way. And then to complicate matters, I also have ways in which for me personally, when my husband and I were first looking to adopt and living in Pennsylvania, in Western Pennsylvania, which Mm -hmm. was the first time in my life where I'd ever seen billboards with Mm -hmm. aborted fetuses and things like that, which is very what what they call in the secular world um, in certain evangelical circles, pro-life or what have you. We went to an adoption agency and Black children were discounted meaning that it was going to cost less for us to adopt a Black child than if we wanted to adopt a white child or even a biracial child. Uh, And so for me, it brought up just this whole notion. Again, when we talk about the hidden ways, the, the hidden conversations or ways in which people don't recognize what this looks like systemically mm-hmm. and socially. For me, that's that's one of the ways. Who Jesus! We already all the way in. Holy <laughs> crap. I'm sorry. Y'all almost made me cuss. <laughs> <laughs> what? So black children are worth less, literally. Oh my God. I'm sorry. I'll, I just need to take a fanning break. No, totally. Yeah. What? Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. We still have to hear from Andrea. So Andrea, please share your story. How does your story intersect with, with the issues of abortion or reproductive justice? Yeah. Um, so when I hear this question, I feel like I think about, you know, little specific moments of my life and childhood and, and growing up. And so I think I definitely kind of grew up in a, a very strongly pro-life household, environment, culture, church culture. And I was taught, you know, if you're really a Christian, you have to vote the certain way. You have to vote pro-life no matter what. And so there was just a lot of indoctrination, I think, for me that I kind of took at face value as an adolescent. I remember reading a book by Francine Rivers called The Atonement Child about a woman who is raped and decides to keep her child. And I remember hearing a message loud and clear, no matter what, you keep the baby. This is just what you do. But as I got older and was kind of thinking for myself as I was voting, you know, as I was 22, Obama was running and I was just really excited to vote for him. And I really had no no issues voting for Democratic candidates and started kind of growing suspicious of my evangelical friends who were voting for candidates I really didn't agree with just because of this one issue. And at the time, I would have mm-hmm. still fully identified as pro-life, and but still just saw some nuance and saw, well, I care more about these other things. Why would I vote this way? But as I've even just in the last few years, untangling purity culture, which was a big part of my upbringing, I've started to see a lot of mm-hmm. correlations with just the way that the female body is scapegoated and blamed for things and have been able to kind of see, you know, something was smelling very rotten in the evangelical community with single issue voting. And Mm -hmm. so I feel like my my associations were definitely more kind of political and starting to to pick that apart and kind of see what is this about? There's something kind of not good, not faithful, not Christ-like underlying this belief system within white evangelicalism. Wow. Okay. So we're going to come, you said a lot of big words like purity (laughs) culture and scapegoat, and we're going to come back to those that y'all, we just hit right. So you can see everybody, you can see why I invited these women to talk with us today because their stories run deep and they've been thinking about these things for such a long time. I want to turn back to Susan and Susan, as a woman who went through the abortion process, the the process of choosing, the process Mm -hmm. of showing up, of, of doing it, the process of now going back to your church and your family, what do people on both sides of this or all sides of this conversation need to understand that we may not understand yet? Hmm. Well, I think there's a lot of things, a lot of ways I could answer that question. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think for me, as a clergywoman, as a Christian that was raised in a progressive Christian church in North Carolina, shout out to North Carolina, I feel that no one I know um, or have talked with take this decision lightly. Mm. Um, A decision around abortion is a pivotal decision. Mm-hmm. and will shape your life and your future. And I don't mean that in a in a completely negative way or in a completely positive way. And I do think my experience of growing up in a, um, a democratic sort of household surrounded by progressive Christian folks is that there was this sense that abortion, you know, should be a right and a, and a personal private decision um, for an individual. But I think the piece that was missing from that conversation is that it's also an incredibly heavy and sacred decision and that that there can be a lot of pain and a lot of grief around a decision to have an abortion. And there can be a lot of joy and a lot of relief around the decision to have an abortion. And I think what I've really come through through my own sort of faith development, as well as through the sermon tour that I did with Exhale, uh, is really recognizing that, you know, Jesus uh, showed up for me. God showed up for me in ways that I think human beings and Christian community were not able to. Mm. And that was a real gift. It saved my life. Mm. And and I don't know what I would would have done um, if I didn't have that sort of upbringing and that sort of understanding of love and grace and acceptance. And I think that uh, that narrative around whether it's right or wrong or whether you're just, you know, completely relieved or completely traumatized, that's not the reality. It is all of those things. And I think that we as, as women and as people that can carry life in our bodies are entrusted with an incredibly sacred responsibility and duty. And I think that no one takes that lightly. Um, No one that I've talked with, Christian or not, takes that lightly. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. Have you ever been on a pilgrimage? The very first one I ever did changed my life forever. We do a lot of things here on Freedom Road, but the most powerful of all is pilgrimage. Freedom Road journeys roll through cohesive stories and help us understand better how the world broke and what it will take to be whole. Our absolute favorite thing is to leverage the power of pilgrimage to strengthen groups' capacity to do justice in their communities. Check out the show notes for this episode. Click the link to learn more about Freedom Road pilgrimages and contact us through the website if you'd like to join us on Freedom Road. I want to come back to you because you just shared such a a powerful part of your story. And I want to ask you, I want to go back to the response of your church when they heard that you had had an abortion or did you ever tell them? And what was their response? The church that I grew up in um, now, yes, they know because it has been... um, it is a public, you know, conversation around my experience. I, the church I was serving, uh, you know, sort of the same thing. I did not, I did not feel like when I was serving there that it made sense for me to intersect this piece of my life into my ministry there. So I, 
I actually resigned and left that congregation before I spoke publicly about this experience. I do find that um, since I have now shared this abortion experience publicly and in its intersection with my own Christian faith in congregations where, you know, like where I went to seminary and sort of dear colleagues of mine that are pastors of congregations in various parts of the country and Minnesota and in Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, I think one of the most precious moments I had was actually of a of a mentor pastor in Oakland, California, where I went to seminary, who said to me what In some ways, what he said, I'll just like what he said to me was, I think that we missed out on an opportunity of supporting you um, Mm -hmm. is what his his words were to me. And it was in the context of, you know, of thanking me for my bravery and of opening up this conversation in the context of of his congregation many years later. And it really just stuck with me. I really felt as though Jim, you know, sort of saw me and saw the ways that at times Christian community has limitations around, you know, what we can hold and how we can show up. And mm-hmm. I I really felt validated by that apology, especially I think also, you know, from a man um, yeah. that that was very important to me. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I think one of the biggest things that I've like a big aha that I had maybe two or three years ago was that when I looked around and I asked the question of who is actually guiding the public conversation on abortion, and I wouldn't actually say reproductive justice because it has nothing It's not even part of their purview. But who is guiding the conversation, the public conversation about abortion? It is white men. I mean, Mm -hmm. they are the ones who are literally the ones pushing it in the legislative arena, generally speaking. And they're the ones who who have literally crafted the frame through which we view the issue. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm really intrigued by, Andrea, I'm intrigued by this article that you wrote last August 2019 um, for the Washington Post. You wrote an op-ed entitled, How the Female Body Became the Scapegoat for White Evangelicals. In that article, you talk about the concept of the scapegoat. You ask the question, you know, what is the scapegoat and how do we, how do we actually walk away from it? Like, why are things the way they are? And you name this concept of the scapegoat as being the reason. I would actually think, I, I think that the scapegoat has something to do with the way or the reason why Susan wasn't able to be pastored by her church. Mm-hmm. So Andrea, can you explain a little bit more about that concept of the scapegoat? Yeah. Um, so it's definitely not original to me. Um, it's something that I studied Back in grad school, when I was actually looking at female heroines in post-colonial literature, but um, a literary theorist and anthropologist named Rene Girard kind of has this theory about how ancient civilizations worked, how they tried to maintain order. When chaos came into the community, they kind of cast that chaos onto a scapegoat that was then killed. The scapegoat is innocent, but doesn't have a voice. And Girard actually argues that Jesus was kind of a symbol of the ultimate scapegoat, the final scapegoat, the end of the scapegoating mechanism. He was killed. He was innocent, but he had a voice. If you look at the Gospels where his story is told, it's clear that he was innocent. That's kind of the end of the scapegoat mechanism as you finally have the scapegoat who is able to speak. And so I feel like I've seen, you know, even though Jesus was here a while ago and the crucifixion was over 2000 years ago, humans still default to the scapegoat mechanism in order to maintain order. So that's kind of the big picture theory of of the scapegoat that I was looking at. It's really interesting. And so in your article, you mentioned purity culture. Can you explain that? What is purity culture and how Talk about how it lives and breathes in white evangelicalism. Yeah, so purity culture was a movement that kind of peaked in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, So I would have been in middle school and high school during that time. And it was kind of this movement to, well, the big big idea was abstinence uh, before and outside of marriage, keeping yourself pure until you got married. And, you know, there were purity rings that you would wear on your left hand or your right hand to symbolize this commitment that you were making to God to keep yourself pure. But a big, there were a lot of 
kind of underlying messages to that. And a lot of it was a responsibility put on girls to maintain their own purity and to maintain the purity of the boys around them by dressing modestly because we were, our bodies would lead them to temptation or lead them to lust. Um, so it was definitely a patriarchal kind of misogynistic movement, but I I was fully subscribed to it as an adolescent. It made sense to me. It was taught to me. So I, it's definitely been deconstructed and kind of criticized for the past, well, I'd say since the early, like, since like 2012 or 13, I think people have been talking about how um, hurtful it was. But I see kind of the scapegoat mechanism at work in purity culture. And it's the female body that is the problem. It's the female body that is leading mm-hmm. others to sin. So it was definitely a damaging thing for me. And it definitely kind of reduced the story of Jesus and the gospel to kind of this one quote unquote sin. One sin, the sin of sexuality. Like, uh, what, what's the sin? Um, sex outside of marriage or before marriage. Wow. That's so <laughs> deep. So all sin gets, and you know what it does, doesn't it make sense? It's like all these like synapses are firing in my brain. I'm remembering conversations about people asking, well, do you think that the original sin was actually sex? <sighs> you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Like, no, <laughs> but purity culture makes God created our bodies, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Now, what do you say? What? How does purity culture connect with abortion? Yeah, so I kind of have just been seeing, you know, purity culture at its root. It was just like the responsibility was on the woman. It was, I mean, I remember thinking oh, I need to stay a virgin until I'm married, but I can't expect my husband to be a virgin still. Of course not. So it was kind of always this understanding of it's me that has to remain pure. And so I kind of was just putting the dots together. I mean, even just like before writing this article that, you know, when you think about kind of the pro-life language and the the language that's around that movement, it's it's very much, this is the woman's fault. This is her responsibility. This is, it's kind of shaming of her in a way that I saw purity culture shaming of young girls and even women. And I was like, there's just something that is connected here that is gross to me. And that just doesn't seem right and seems rooted in let's just keep pointing the finger at women, specifically at their bodies. Now, it's interesting because as you were talking about the scapegoat earlier, I don't know about you, Sakina, but I totally had visions of the cross and the lynching tree. Were you thinking mm-hmm. about that? I was absolutely <laughs> thinking about the cross and the lynching tree. And and so, you know, because what, what James Cone, what, what Dr. Cone says in that amazing theological treatise is that African-Americans have actually been the scapegoat in, um, in America. So literally put on the cross in order to take the sins of America into our bodies. And, and that cross was the lynching tree. Sakina, do you want to say anything about that? Yeah, I was, I was actually, I was, it, for me, it also brought up womanism as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just how we begin to other as well as how we begin to limit women's voices and put them in a certain position and how we as a Christian community have supported such in our theology, in the way we live out our theology in terms of in communities of praxis as well. So I actually looked at, it brought to mind for me several things about pastors policing bodies, about times in which women were were made to go before the congregation and to tell of their sins, you know, um, of those times. But also just how we have lifted up those figures in the Bible, and that has become part of what we teach our children uh, what we teach new Christians, and we're keeping we're, we're keeping the concept, and we're keeping that wrong theology going. It is an infection in uh, Christianity. So, for you, Sakina, what are the implications of the right to life movement on racism and white supremacy? <laughs> Interesting question. You know. <laughs> 
The whole right to life movement for me, given actually what I've shared before, should be uh, quite honestly just that, the right to life. It seems as though once a baby is born, then all of a sudden, then there is no right to life. The whole notion of particularly Black bodies, we're counted in as much as we need to be for the political gains of white society, just like we were counted for the economic gains of white society. Um, I'm, of course, you know, looking at this whole notion of the three fifths of a of a of a person, if you will, um, coming mm-hmm. up even on the on the census. But that was really because you didn't want to recognize that we also had souls and we were people, but you needed us in order to gain certain things economically and politically. And so you need us in order to gain certain things. And so you you court Black people, you court Black people who are evangelical. And and I, you know, used to use that term myself to describe myself all the time, but it's become a term that is so, that does not reflect the totality of who I am. But when I think about the right to life movement and think about the anti-racism movement or the movement to look at the wholeness of all persons, I see that there were times in which recently some white evangelicals have tried to take folks along another way. I'm thinking about when even the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission at the conference that they usually put on begin to talk about right to life as it relates to people in Black bodies in terms of police brutality and things of that sort. And so I, I think... What we have to do is to expand this conversation and look at the dignity and worth of our people and look at what truly, what is life. And for me, life has to be those things that make up reproductive justice. It has to include also the right to parent a child or children in a safe and healthy environment, recognizing that they would not have their life taken away for having their music too loud or carrying Skittles or or what have you, or having a, a Nerf gun, if you will. But they have to be able to look at me as a true person. And those people who I welcome into my life to parent or those that come from my own body uh, would have to be lifted up in the same way. And so you just mentioned another big word, reproductive justice. Can you break that down for us? Sure. Reproductive justice is a movement um, that was started basically to change the narrative, much like Freedom Road does, to change the narrative, to change the conversation, to recognize that, uh, as uh, my other sisters have talked about, you know, in our society, power and privilege have been the soul ways in which or the people of which have set the course of the conversation. And so Black women came together and said that this conversation is wrong. We're going to set the conversation based on our needs, based on how we see ourselves. And they created the term reproductive justice and part of it deals with it deals with three things the right to have a child the right to not have a child and the right to parent a child or children in safe and healthy environments and of course each each one of those phrases can be dissected in different ways but i do think that one thing to point out that for me as this movement was getting started i was actually uh, graduating from a Black women's institution, a historically Black college for women uh, named Bennett College in Greensboro, North Carolina. And as that conversation began to grow and develop, I believe that it is because of those founders of that conversation, it is because that those Black women chose to reshape the conversation and claim their own space, even publicly, by putting out ads in the Washington Post and in roll call, those that are political junkies and know something about the newspaper that uh, people in Congress and their staff people read. Uh, More than 800 Black women signed a declaration, if you will, that 
basically started the reproductive justice movement in name. I would say that Black women, in what they did, they always acted in that way. But uh, in name, if you will. And I think that because that was out there, then that is why you had in my home state of North Carolina, uh, our home state of North Carolina, if you will, Susan, that uh, people were able <laughs> to talk about the eugenics movement and talk about yeah. the fact that we did need to give financial compensation to those people that were sterilized and and own that history and, and begin to attempt to clean up that history. Um, mm-hmm. But you can't do that until that narrative is is changed until the conversation gets to be changed. See, this is the thing that is actually honestly really striking me is that you have in this one conversation, you have Andrea who sat in the pews of a white evangelical church and heard the message that was crafted by white men who led those churches that said, be pure and definitely don't have an abortion. Otherwise, you are absolutely stained for life. It's like, you know, the scarlet A. I mean, you're going to have sex that's already stained for life. You might be able to re-virginize. We didn't even talk about that, but that's a whole other deal. And then, but if you have an abortion, oh Lord, no, like you are going to hell. And then if you if you look at those same men, it's those same, it's that same group of men that also were, have, they hold the lineage of white men who were a part of that eugenics movement back in the 1930s and 20s. And that, that's the lineage. That's the folk who actually did that stuff. And purity, it's, it's just interesting to me that it has both racial and gender intersections. And it's the same movement that is doing both things in America. Anybody else want to speak to that? And and given that you're saying that, because the eugenics movement, particularly in our state, uh, went through 1976. And as people are, are, filing, well, the deadline has passed now, but once they filed to actually receive compensation, some people were not even granted compensation because it was not the eugenics board that issued the order to sterilize them. It was so ingrained in the culture because of the intersection with race and gender. It was so ingrained in the culture. Judges and social workers were out going into people's homes, convincing parents falsely to sterilize their kids. See, now it's not, and the thing is, it's not only eugenics, it's also Jim Crow. I mean, it's lynching. All of the legislative structure that actually limits life for people of African descent, right? So, so Susan, you wanted to say something too? Well, I, I think Andrea might have been the one that stepped in, but just because you just said that piece about the lynching culture, I, I um, last fall, I went to the Equal Justice Institute and also visited the uh, lynching memorial or the memorial to peace and justice in Montgomery, Alabama. And I was just really struck, I think, on on that trip with one of my college roommates, who was also a black woman in North from North Carolina, I really was struck by the intersection of of white supremacy and bodily control. And I think we're not and, and sexism, you know, and I think we're not looking at that. You know, I think that we've gotten so polarized and so divided that we don't recognize that this is an orchestrated and very highly planned attack on people's bodies. Black and brown people, where white people have not stood up and said no, and then women's bodies, where you know, men have not stood up and said no. Um, and, and, we're, and, we're all guilty, and we're all, yes, and other women too. And we're all, we're all complicit in it. At least as a white woman, I can say we're all complicit in this. Yeah. yeah. Well, this I mean, together. just, okay, Andrea, everything that, that has been said, but I mean, that connection is really strong. And I even feel like I'm seeing kind of in white circles, like using this pro-life stance or this anti-abortion stance to even avoid talking about systemic racism and things that really, that really matter. Mm -hmm. Like um, Tim Keller tweeted recently, he's a white pastor and Presbyterian, I think, like PCA, not PCUSA. And Lisa, I think you were mentioned at some point on the thread or I saw you respond, but he, he was kind of like, hey, white nationalism is bad. We should probably keep our eyes out for this. And all of these white people were like, 
their response was, what about abortion? And it was just this really strange, like, wait, why are we even, and it's like used as this way to avoid what's actually underneath all of it, which I'm, y'all could help me connect those dots, I think, but I'm like, there's something like, why is this the connection? Why is this the leap when these things are so kind of, I don't know, it's just... Because it divides us. It's a natural divider, you know, and I think when the, you know, when the religious right made a a very determined and calculated decision in the, I think it was in the late 70s, early 80s, that pro-life was going to be their stance and their movement and their mission to take over churches, to take over seminaries, and then ultimately to take over the government. That was the dangling topic. We will dangle a abortion in front of everyone's faces and make them realize that they have to be on our side or they're morally corrupt or morally bankrupt. And I think it, you know, it continues to this day. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe. This is the Freedom Road podcast. Cap is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment we find ourselves in, full of protests, anger, and activist momentum, Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod. Okay, so Sakina, before our break, you were about to say something. Can you share with us what that deep thought was? <laughs> oh, sure. I, I just wanted to echo what everyone else was saying, but also just look at this whole notion of white supremacy and the controlling of bodies. Of course, it um, maps back to slavery, but it is something that has then been appropriated by this so-called right to life movement and this abortion single issue movement. But we see it also now as it relates to the border and how the bodies of people of color are being controlled at the border, how their children are being controlled, what this looks like, uh, even to the point where people are being targeted, their bodies are also being targeted. Uh, when you when you are released from these detention centers, you're often released without any shoelaces. And that's easy then for you to be spotted and you can be targeted as someone who can be picked back up again if you try to get back in to these United States, but also someone that has been through some trauma and can be targeted because you don't you don't have certain things. There are things that get taken away from you. So if you try to go back to your country, then you are you are primed for uh, being violated physically. So this whole notion of bodily control is something that has been part of this American society. It is what lynching was all about, because if you know that there's someone out there that is going to control your body also, it is so that you can then have yourself muted and not be empowered to speak. Dare you lose this human body or or your life. And I think that when we think about what the white male has set up, in some ways it's brilliant. You know, the devil is is brilliant in in a lot of Mm -hmm. ways, you know, in terms of of, uh, how how this entity, this evil one, if you will, will will seek to turn us away from God and turn us to a people who are complicit, uh, one of you said, in this whole notion of commodity modification and and control of bodies. It makes us then be complicit in controlling where people live, if they live, and if they have everything that they need to live. All of that is wrapped into this whole abortion piece. And it's wow. So Andrea, in her article that she wrote back in August of last year, one of the ways that you end the article, Andrea, is you ask the question, 
what is it that they fear? Like, or, or actually, what is it they, that they desire? And you're, you ask, do they desire this? Do they desire this? Because the scapegoat and the purity thing, it also, Renee Gerard's theory, you know what, girl, just explain. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, well, you were saying it. Yeah. It's like, well, what, like, what are they trying to, what system are they trying to hold together? And it kind of seems like they're yes. trying to hold together their tribe. That's and that's kind of, you know, I think it's, I think at the root of it is power, but at the root of power is control. And so this sense of being in control and continuing, like perpetuating this white male control over what it was going on in the evangelical church and now getting that into politics so we can control the entire country. And so I, I feel like that question I keep like, what do they want? I'm like, I mean, I think it's just yeah. to maintain this control um, to maintain this power that they have always had. And as a white person, I've, I've been very privileged in that too, and understand this discomfort with, oh my gosh, could, am I not like, will I not have the power that I've always had? Will I have to, you know, this, will I have to actually share the table with people? And so I feel like there's, I feel like that could be at the heart of it. Um, but i love to know what other people think too. Yeah, that's one. Is it okay if I say something? This yeah. is Susan again. Yeah. That's one thing I've been thinking a lot about is after I left pastoring, I worked in a Unitarian Universalist organization uh, running a domestic violence shelter. And I definitely feel like working in the domestic violence field and looking at the issues around control and power within family dynamics and then within systems and then within culture. I mean, there's some huge overlaps between that sort of dynamic within personal relationships and then how it plays out in an institutional reality, both around racism as well as, you know, intimate relationships around immigration, around control of people's bodies. And at Exhale, I've been surprised how many of our callers are calling us uh, to talk about an abusive relationship that they're in that has then led them to having to make a decision around abortion. And I've just been struck by, I didn't really realize that my turn to doing domestic violence work actually would better prepare me for conversations around the intersection between people's bodies, women's bodies in particular, and their reproductive health and reproductive choices, which, you know, I think are, are really a, a stranglehold on our country in a much bigger way than I, I had really recognized. You know, this, this one quote, thank you, Susan, this one quote from Andrea's article stands out to me. Andrea, I'm going to read it because it's so good and it, it, it speaks directly to what we're talking about. You said... Or do they fear what an end to their scapegoat mechanism would do? When the woman or scapegoat speaks, it causes unrest. It causes right. a dismantling. And I can, I can absolutely, just even from this conversation, you know, substitute the word when the African-American woman yeah. speaks it causes unrest. When the black man speaks, it causes unrest. When the immigrant, at the, when this asylum seeker at the border mm -hmm. speaks about the sexual abuse they experience in the cages or the fact that they've lost their mother or father forever, it causes unrest. When, when the one who is not of the tribe that has had the power for literally two millennia when they speak, it causes unrest on that order. And so, it, you know, one of the things that really blew my mind recently was just realizing white men have literally been at the top of the hierarchy of human belonging since the Roman era in Western society and ever since. And but not in all places, but it reached all places when colonization reached those places. Mm -hmm. So since, you know, the realm yeah. of colonization, it has been just the norm. The norm of the world is that white men control everything and everyone. So the prospect of having 
the scapegoat speak of having the black person, the woman, the gay person, the immigrant or asylum seeker speak, it disrupts. And so therefore it must be, it must be crushed. It must be silenced. And we have been effectively silenced in this area because we are not talking about it until now. Yeah, that's right. That's the whole mothers of the movement. That is, yeah. that is why the mothers that watched or looked at their black male sons' mm-hmm. uh, bodies, mm-hmm. uh, yep. when they stood up and they went across this nation to speak, it yeah. rocked. It rocked everyone. Yeah. Uh, it's so much so, I mean, one of them is in Congress right now, Lucy McBath, right? Hell no. Uh, like, what happens when we take our own agency and we do speak? I, I mean, I think that's powerful. You hit it. I think so. I think I think we hit it, ladies. Mm-hmm. We hit it. So, Andrea, can you talk to me a little bit more about how your article impacted your relationships within this white evangelical community? And not only that, y'all, just understand this: that you know, according to sociologists, white evangelicalism is really they hold the American ethos in its most concentrated form. Like um, American whiteness is held in its most concentrated form in white evangelicalism. I don't know exactly why that is. It has something to do with our history, our Puritan roots and all the rest. And the fact that that's the strain that this comes from. But you sat in the center of it all, Andrea. So when you wrote this article and you began to speak out against the normative understanding of the world, what was the impact of that? Yeah. Um, I, I was conveniently, I had taken a social media sabbatical the month of August, not knowing I was going, not knowing I was going to write this article at the very end of the month. So I didn't post it because I technically wasn't on social media, but to be honest, I was afraid of posting it myself. I was okay with other people mm-hmm. reposting yeah. it and it ended up on my personal Facebook page and that's all fine. Cause obviously I wrote it for publicly, but I was, I mean, there were certain people but I was afraid of certain people reading it. And I mean, even my parents who they printed it off and read it more than once. And we discussed it for a long time and it ended up being a pretty good and fruitful conversation. Wow. But, um, there's, yeah, I feel more disoriented in my faith than I have ever felt because I'm trying to figure out, mm-hmm. you know, I was, taught this one kind of Jesus who was like white Jesus. And I'm realizing I have kind of worshiped this really flat character of, of God and of, of Christ and him having to relearn like who is Jesus actually. And, and it's been, mm. it's been hard within white evangelical spaces, not the faith community that I'm in now, um, which wouldn't really identify itself as evangelical, but, but yeah, I've, I've done some avoiding of certain relationships and talking about this, but I've also had several people reach out and be like, thank you for writing that. And I, that really spoke to me and white evangelical Mm -hmm. saying that to me. So I definitely have always felt like I just need to say what is true and I need to say it when I feel led to say it, which I believe is the spirit at work. So Typically, if I'm out publicly speaking about something, it's because yeah. it feels time and it feels right. But it's, um, I feel disoriented <laughs> a little bit as far as, yeah, what kind of mm-hmm. church I was brought up in. And yeah, it's been kind of difficult, but. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm, honestly, I'm fascinated and also encouraged and inspired by your bravery, your courage to write your story as you did and. For those who are not familiar, I mean, Andrea's father is Max Lucado, who is a best-selling author within evangelicalism. So for her to actually just be honest about what she thought and felt was literally an act of courage. And so I just want to lift that up and, and just acknowledge that. Yeah, I was just thinking about when I when I made this decision to do 
to go public about my abortion experience, I first was reached out to by Parents Magazine that wanted to do a piece on mothers who have had abortions because I can't remember the statistic, but it's actually a large statistic of, of women who have abortions who are already mothers, which I think debunks a lot of myths that mm-hmm. are out there. But I remember when I was sort of going through the process of making this decision that I really wanted to have conversations with people that were close in my life, with my parents, with my son, with my ex-husband, with my current boyfriend. I wanted, and then with a host of friends and other clergy leaders, I wanted people to know that I was planning to do this, but also to know that they would be with me through this experience because I knew that I could not do this on my own. And um, Andrea, I just super appreciated what you said about social media because you can really get sucked into the negative things that are put out on Twitter and on Facebook. And it's very overwhelming. And if I didn't have, if I hadn't had, you know, a circle of sort of social media support (laughs) that, you know, were kind of interfering and speaking to people on my behalf or from their own experience as well, I think that I wouldn't have been able to do this or come out the other side of going public feeling so convinced and certain of, of my of my Christian faith, of my moral decisions, and of my just goodness, you know, as a as a mother yeah. and as a female. Mm. Amen. You know, so you actually just, you kind of gave me an idea, and I want to do kind of a lightning round with everybody. Can I ask you in 20 seconds or less to share what is the number one myth about this issue, about the issue of abortion, reproductive justice, that you wish could be dispelled, that you want people to know is a myth and not reality. And whoever would like to start, go. (laughs) Okay, I'll go. (laughs) Okay. And then you can follow if if you get inspired. Okay. So the number one myth that I want to dispel is that I hear so, so many times I hear people come to me and say, you should be, you know, solidly pro-life. Well, I want you to know I am um, for life, but I am for life from the mind of God through conception all the way to death. And, but the myth is that it is black babies that are being targeted for abortions. And so I should be for this. I should be the for the pro-life movement because it's saving black babies from being aborted. Well, I want to say that's a myth. The truth is that abortion follows poverty. That poverty is the number one most clear indicator of abortion rates in America. Mm -hmm. Wherever you have high poverty rates, you will also have high abortion rates. So I was amazed when I was living in New York City and people would point to me. I mean, people of color, pastors of color will say, well, what about East New York? East New York has the highest abortion rates. That is evidence that they are targeting babies in East New York. We need to stop this. No, do your homework. If you look at East New York, it has the highest poverty rate in New York City. And so therefore, it also has the highest abortion rates. Now, what does that tell you about the choices people are making? They are actually making economic choices about how much they can handle. And that is based on the reality that services for poor families have been cut by the very same people who want to outlaw abortion. Hello, somebody. Yeah. So that's my myth. Anybody else got one? (laughs) That was awesome. (laughs) It was. Um, I can speak. This is Susan again. I think... I think I sort of already referenced it, but for me, it's this notion that people don't want to talk about it. I actually found on my sermon tour and in other conversations across the country with people using what Exhale calls a pro-voice approach to talking about abortion, which means leading with abortion stories, um, personal abortion stories. People are are very curious and interested and want the space to be able to talk about their own personal 
fundamental intersection around abortion. If if given the, you know, if given the sacred container to be able to do that, I think people are are desperate um, for that kind of space. And I also think that there's a strong myth around um, religious women or um, religious individuals being not choosing or not having abortions. And again, I think that that is, it is a complete myth. And I also think people are looking for ways to connect their faith and this experience. And I think that that is actually kind of the magical spot where we as faith leaders can, can lead the way. Um, Amen. Yeah, I, Anybody else have I any would like to, and I and just make a strong plea because we're coming up on election season and the primaries are when we're recording this are uh, soon. And um, I just want to say that you can still be a Christian and vote for a pro-choice candidate. It is possible, especially what Lisa just said, mm-hmm. if you look at the facts and the numbers and the mm-hmm. poverty level, I mean, if you really are, if, if your goal is for less abortions, that's probably what you should be doing anyways. And so I really just want to make a plea to any woman out that's there, right. especially a white evangelical woman who thinks that she really has to vote a certain way in order to still appear Christian or to look like she has a certain faith that you you don't have to. You can still vote for pro-choice candidates and maintain your integrity. I would just simply say, um, since you all have covered it very well, the the myth for me is that being pro-life is being pro-children. And and this whole notion that it is about really us lifting up what is best for all God's children. Mm. Um, And if you are not pro-life, then you are not Mm pro-child. I think ultimately, if you are pro-life, but you are not fighting against hunger, you're not fighting against poverty, you're not fighting against affordable housing. If you don't, if you're pro-life, but you do not have a vision uh, for God's community uh, that recognizes that God's vision for all of us is to have a future and a hope and to not be tied down in debt and things of that sort, then you're really not pro-life. You have to be able to have those conversations that the mothers of the movement whose sons and some daughters were killed in police brutality and excessive force, you have to be able to have those conversations. You have to be able to fight against kids in cages. You have to be able to fight against the controlling of people's bodies. You have to be able to be one that supports the child growing in fullness and in joy. Mm. Mm, That's great. Susan, one last quick question from you, and then I have one question for everyone. Susan, what does good pastoring for women who have experienced the termination of pregnancies look like? Um, wow. Well, I have a few different ideas around that. Uh, if there's a way, um, if you have space to speak about abortion or termination in prayer or in a sermon, I think it opens up the window that people recognize that you know that this is a part of their life um, and a part of the intersection of your faith community and how you can show up for people. I think that's one powerful thing. Mm-hmm. I think also one of the things I worked on in my master's thesis and continue to do sort of personally and then in women's community is creating ritual space for women um, and for folks who identify as women to be able to honor and ritualize their experiences around sexual assault, um, around racism, around domestic violence, and around abortion. And I think creating that kind of space in sacred community uh, should happen. (laughs) You know, it should happen in um, congregations and for a variety of reasons. I think white supremacy um, and white nationalist culture being the primary one, we're not we're not doing that. We're afraid of it and we move away from it. So so creating those alternative spaces. And then I think just, you know, all of us need to be reminded of our created goodness and of the beauty and sacredness that
that is our bodies and the opportunity for us to each day take a moment to to recognize that and and I think especially to teach um, our children of um, the gloriousness that is in their and in their bodies in their gender identity and in the ways that they experience intimacy and closeness that again is another piece of what I think um, churches have not been able to figure out creating space around and what a revolution you know it would be for our children to have a different kind of an inheritance than what we have been given. Wow. And what is your, everyone, what is your prayer for the church regarding the issue of abortion and reproductive justice? I would say my prayer, I think, is that uh, the priorities shift in the white evangelical church. I think once you kind of really start to talk about and see and understand systemic racism, it really changes the way that you see faith. It changes your priorities. And so my prayer is that that becomes a priority for the white evangelical church rather than the abortion thing, because I really think priorities will fall in line once that's something that um, the church can really repent of and, and start to make changes in. Thank you. And my prayer is that we continue to create our own narrative, not one that is dictated by secular society as well as by racists, but one that allows uh, us and our children to grow into a theology that is more so before the fall, not afterwards, Mm. um, and recognize the wholeness of all people, which therefore would mean that there would not be any single issue voting at all, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, because life is filled with gray area, and that in how we practice our Christianity and how we live out our discipleship, that we would do so in a manner that we are setting a table for all those sojourners that come to it in very complicated ways so that even the chair that they sit in will still be comfortable so their journey may be rough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, uh, my prayer and what I have continue to uncover and recover is that uh, the love of Jesus is big enough and um, any of these limits that we're trying to place on Jesus's love uh, are false. And it's a real opportunity and actually a revival of Christian community to trust in the abundant and never-ending love of Jesus. Mm. My prayer is that the church, particularly the white evangelical church, and all those people of color who are part of that, would gain eyes to see the humanity in the other and in themselves. Amen. Amen. I have a song that goes with that, what you just said so well, Lisa. (laughs) You can sing it about. If that's okay with you, yeah, we don't have to, like, you super do not have to share this, but um, it goes, Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and courage to step out without any fear. Give us wisdom to know the way to go. God be with us. God be with us. God be with us on this journey of faith. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. (laughs) Y'all made me cry. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road Podcast is recorded in Washington, D.C. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road Podcast is produced by Freedom Road, LLC. We consult coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. 
You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for updates. We promise we won't flood your inbox. We invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop around the first week of each month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road.